I'm going to be introducing a new series. Um, and so you'll be, uh, we'll be building on that over the coming months. Um, we don't know what the schedule looks like, but hopefully I'll be up here uh, a little bit more often. But uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity, and I, I truly am. It's been, um, Pastor Larry and I were talking this, uh, this week, it's been a year uh, since I uh, began at the church. And uh, so it's been an awesome time to be a part of the family, and I want to thank you for uh, allowing me to be a part of your family. And so I want to ask you this morning, how many of you enjoy riding roller coasters? Anybody? Okay, your daredevils, Right. I, I enjoy riding roller coasters. Um, I find that the, the older I get, the more I understand what could possibly happen to me on those roller coasters. Um, it begins to be a little bit more scary for me as I get older. In fact, a couple years ago, uh, I went on a, a trip to King's Dominion, and I rode the Intimidator. Anybody ever ridden the Intimidator? Any kids in here? Ridden? It's a fairly, you've ridden that one? Okay, you're going to think I'm a pansy, but that scared the life out of me. I mean, straight up, and then it goes, not just straight down, it kind of goes almost like inverted here, and there's so much G-forces on you that apparently I didn't take a deep enough breath before I went down this hill, and I was ready to pass out by the time I hit the bottom. I was, I was scared, but you know what? I went right back on it. I don't know why, something wrong with me, but I, I like roller coasters. See, in the old days, okay, some of our adults, you can reflect with me, the roller coasters used to have that click, 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 click as you went up right? And now the, the, the new ones, they just whoosh, and you just go, or they just fire you off at like 90 miles an hour. The old ones used to give you time to think about what could possibly happen to you. Click, click, click. And with every click, you're going, oh my goodness, what am I doing? What am I doing? And if you're anything like me, if, whether you're harnessed in or whether you have a lap belt, what are you doing? Well, it's going click, click, click. You're going, is this going to hold? Is this going to hold? Is this going to hold? Is this gonna... And you get to the top and you're like, what does it matter now? It doesn't matter. I'm going to go. You, you kind of, you, you do that, right? And if it didn't click hard enough, you click it as far as, it doesn't matter if you can breathe or not. You need that assurance that when you go down and then when you go over that first little loop, right, you're going to stay in, right? You need that assurance. So when you get through the ride, if you're anything like me, you loved it so much and now you're confident that you're going to stay in, right? And so you get back in line. And so then you get back in line, and then you go click, 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 and you think, oh, my dear goodness, why am I doing this again? And what do you do? The same thing. It doesn't matter what ride I get on. And maybe I'm the only one, but I'm doing one of these to make sure I get. Sometimes we not only need some assurance, we need some reassurance. I don't know about you, but in our Christian life, we understand, right? We understand that we have a relationship with Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, that's when the relationship has begun. We have this faith in, in, in Him, and we know that we are eternally secure in Him. But when we start to live and we start to have problems and issues, sometimes we get a little bit nervous. We get a little bit scared, and we, and we know that we have that blessed assurance. We've sang that song, right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Maybe you guys know that hymn. But sometimes I find that we need some blessed reassurance. That's what the book of Thess- First Thessalonians is really all about, is Paul is writing to the church at Thess- Thessalonica, and he's letting them know, hey, you guys are doing some really good things here. But what happens is when we get into life, we have these questions. It's really, well, how, how should I live? You know, what should I do? I hear these terms, uh, be a disciple, be a follower. I hear these terms, discipleship. What, what, what does that even mean? How should I live? And... What we're going to find out is that in First Thessalonians, we're going to get some of those answers. And so if you have your Bibles, turn in First Thessalonians to chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, it will be up here on the screen. 
And we're going to start in verse 2. This is the Apostle Paul that is writing to this church and a few of his friends as well. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. Three of the things that we see in these slides, these, uh, these verses, is we see faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it says, uh, chapter 13, excuse me, says, and now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. That's how I learned them as a kid. It was always in that order, faith, hope, and love. But what you'll notice in this instance is it's kind of out of order. It actually doesn't come off your tongue the right way. It says faith, love, and hope. And I, I wonder why. I wonder why it's like that. It's noticeably different. In fact, one commentator put it this way. He says, faith is the commencement of spiritual life. Love is its progress and continuance, and hope is its completion. So faith would be the foundation, love the structure, and hope the top stone of God's spiritual temple in the soul. We understand that when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it is by God's grace, but through faith that we are saved is the beginning of life. And then it is love that drives us on to love God and to love other people. And the Bible says if you do not have love, basically you're like an annoying noise. Without love, you become useless. Finally, he says in hope in Christ is kind kind of the cherry on top, right? It's the thing that pushes us through the hard times. Faith, love, and hope are really three of the main key virtues of being a Christian, of being a disciple. If we're going to be disciples and we're going to be disciples making disciples, these are the three things that we got to have in our lives. And so when Paul writes to this church, those are the things that he's addressing to them. He's saying, you know what I've seen? I've seen that you have faith, that you have love, that you have hope. And so he begins with faith. So faith, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Pastor Larry's message last week was pretty much all about faith. We understand faith as this confidence, this trust, this belief. And we found out last week that faith is busy, right? Faith is busy. In fact, in verse 3, it says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. And now we've got to make the point here. Faith and works have to be in complete contrast when it comes to salvation, right? You have faith and you have works. You cannot earn your way to heaven. It's by God's grace through our faith that we are saved. You can't do enough good things. You can't help out in enough soup kitchens. There isn't enough that you can do by yourself to become a Christian. So faith and works are separate and in complete contrast when it comes to salvation. But when it comes to living the Christian life, they've got to be melded and married. Faith and works have to be together. If you're a genuine believer, as we found out last week, then we know that we are going to be busy in our faith. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it's not up on the screen, but I'll read it for you. It says that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value, but the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself. This idea of expressing carries with it an action, right? To be busy. Faith expressing itself. I want to ask you, are you busy in your life? Now, you may look at me kind of strange because it's, it's the holidays, right? Of course, you're busy. Everyone's busy. Yet we're going from here and there. And if you've been to the mall, which I was at the mall yesterday, don't do that to yourself. Stay away from the mall at this time of the year. I'm not sure why I did it. But went to the mall, okay, busy. People are busy, 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 busy. But what are they busy about? They're busy about their own things. They're busy about their own gain. I wonder, are we busy 
for God? Are we busy for others for the glory of God? Or are we too consumed with our own issues? Are we too consumed with our own problems and selfish gain and benefits? You know, I believe really that this is a major problem in our culture today, and it's selfishness. It is what drives our vehicles, right? It is what really guides us and causes us to make some horrible decisions. It's not just our culture, it's the world. You know, we see it during this most wonderful time of the year, right? And we all get the reports on Black Friday of people that really just want to bless somebody so much that they got to have this gift, and they're willing to go blows with somebody so they can bless somebody else, right? But what's at the root of it? Well, I want to give the best gift, or I just want a really big screen TV to watch football on. I don't know what it is, but it's by selfishness that they are motivated. You see, Galatians 5, 6 says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself, but that verse doesn't end right there. It says faith expressing itself by love. By love. That is the motivation. Love for other people. And we know, right, the term for love when it comes to Christian circles is what? Koinonia or agape. You guys know the term agape, right? This term agape is interesting. The word was not used very much until Christians kind of took it and made it kind of their own characteristic word for love. And when they found this word, they not only had a new word, but they had a new idea about love. It's an idea that we see in Christ and in Christ's death for sinners. One author puts it this way. He says, perhaps as good a way as any of grasping the new idea of love the Christians had is to contrast it with the idea conveyed by eros. It's another, another word for love. Eros has two principal characteristics. It's a love of the worthy, and it's a love that desires to possess. Isn't that what we most often show? If you are good enough, if you're worthy enough, then I'll, I'll give you a little love. And love requires and wants something back. It wants to possess. But he says agape, in contrast, is in contrast at both points. It is not a love of the worthy, and it's a not a love that desires to possess. On the contrary, it is a love given quite irrespective of merit, and it is a love that seeks to give. Love needs to be the motivation. You see, God loves you not because you're worthy of that love. God loves me not because I'm worthy of that love. It's because that's who God is. 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's in his very nature. It's who he is. And Paul calls it here in verse 3, not just love, but a labor of love. That's interesting. This idea of labor, it carries with it the idea of painful effort. You know, when you love somebody, it takes effort. And you know, it's not always easy to love people, right? We are to burden ourselves with the needs of others. Love becomes a sacrifice. Do you find it hard sometimes to love other people? Yeah, right? Some people are just not lovable. It's hard to love certain people, right? God calls us to love everybody, and yes, we love everybody, but then when we have to actually show it, my goodness, I don't know if I can do it. But it's the love that should be the motivation. Love becomes a sacrifice. We see that ultimately through Jesus, right? With his death on the cross. But look at how he interacted with people while he was here on this earth. You see his interaction with the adulterous woman. Nobody wanted anything to do with this woman. In fact, they wanted to stone her. But Jesus took the time and the effort to talk to her. What about the, the leper? 
The leper that Jesus healed, you understand, don't you, that leprosy, you had to be away from people. If you were going down the street, you had to cross over to the other side. They would, they would scream unclean. No one would want to touch him. But it was a sacrifice of love that Jesus said, no, come here, I'm going to heal you. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. And if you remember from one of my last sermons is he washed the disciples' feet. I mean, talk about a sacrifice, right? Jesus sacrificed, and it was motivated by love, and it was for nothing in return. It wasn't a love that was easy. It wasn't a love that was pretty or glorified, but it was a love that was pure. That's the example that we have. And see, because of your faith, because of the faith that you have in Jesus, you have that faith, and then you become motivated by love. You see, God is love, and then therefore, His Son is love. And so when His disciples saw Jesus and saw the love that He had for them, they couldn't help it. They had to share it with other people. And I'm convinced that when you come to the realization of the kind of love that we are shown as Christians and as believers, that you just can't help sharing it with other people. It's a motivating factor. See, what happens is we receive the love down from heaven, and then we take that love and share it with other people. It's got to be a motivating factor. It's not going to be easy. It's not always pretty. But there needs to be a response to the love that we are shown. One author puts it this way. He says, when this love comes to us, we are faced with a challenge we cannot ignore. Once we see that God is like that, that God loves as a part of his very nature, that God loves in a way that means Calvary, we must make a decision. He says we either need to yield to the divine agape to be transformed by it, or to be remade in the divine image to see people as God sees them, or we don't, right? Really simple. We do or we don't. But if we do not, in that lies our condemnation. We have shut ourselves up to be loveless, but those who yield themselves to God are transformed by the power of the divine agape so that they rejoice to give themselves in the service of others. Paul thanks God that this is what the Thessalonians have done. You understand, right, that Paul is writing to the church, writing to the Thessalonians, and he's saying, this is what I remember about you, that you have been busy in your faith, and you are now laboring in love in a response to the love that you have been shown. I wonder, what is our response, right? What is our response to the, labor, the, the love that we have been shown? Is it just to keep it to ourselves, or do we share the love with other people? Do we just keep it internal? And say, I've got the love of Christ, but I don't want to give the love of Christ, right? Which is completely selfish. Or do we labor in love, love people when it hurts, show them the love of Christ? Do we have that faith like the Thessalonians? Do we have the faith that is busy? Do we have the faith that is shown through love? See, these are the kind of things that the Apostle Paul noticed about this church. And finally, he notices their hope. We understand hope, right, of confidence, right? We talk about hope as far as confidence in God. But I wonder, is our confidence an ultimate, unshakable confidence in our churches around this world? I think, I think perhaps maybe our hope is more of a confidence with maybe like a fingers crossed. I remember when I was a kid during this time of the year, I, I, I love Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas music and the trees and all that kind of stuff. I love the presents. And as a kid, of course, you love presents. And they used to have this, and, and some of you will remember this, the, the Sears Wish Book. Everybody remember the Sears Wish Book? You used to get it in the mail, and it was every parent's nightmare. 
because they, they would open it, and for me, I would go and I would circle, 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 circle. And then I'd leave the, I'd leave the magazine around uh, in inconspicuous places that they would have to be for long periods of time. And then maybe I would bring it up in conversation uh, that I really want this, right? And then when it came to Christmas Eve, I would stay up all night with my sisters, and we would hope upon hope that, oh, man, I hope I get whatever the hot toy was that year, right? I hope that I get it. I hope that I get it. All the while, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I didn't get it. I don't know if I got it. It's kind of a hope with fingers crossed. However, hope here, as it is referred to, is an expectation of good. It is a joyfulness and a confidence in salvation, a confidence in the author and foundation of hope. See, we have the confidence in our God that he is who he said he is. That when his son came to this earth, that he did what he said that he did. And it's because we have that confidence, that hope, that we can be steadfast or patient in our hope. This word steadfast in the Greek, you've probably heard me say it, it's hupomone, which means to hold up under the pressure of, to endure. You see, we remain in our hope because we have the confidence that we can make it through anything because we know the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. We can remain constant. We can remain unconquered by our trials and our tribulations because we have that hope. But the power is not in our actions and what we can do. No, Paul, as he moves forward in verse 5, says, the power is in the Holy Spirit. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul came to them preaching the word. And he was showing them how he was working in his faith. And he was laboring in love to them. And he was showing them the hope and the confidence that he had. And it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this. And it's with great pride that he says this. Not like pride and selfishness look at me. But he was so proud of the Thessalonians that he says in the next verse that you also became imitators of us. Imitators from the root word mimos, which is where we get our English word to mimic. It's also the same exact word that is used for being a follower. You see, Paul was comfortable saying, now you as a Thessalonian church, you have been mimicking or following or imitating me. And he was confident in that because he was imitating Christ. He had been busy in his faith. He had been steadfast in his hope. He had been laboring in love. And so he was confident in that because he was following Jesus. We know that how? We know that because before Jesus, Paul was a Christian hater. Paul was a Christian killer. And then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said, hey, dude, what's up? What's going on? And Paul had to make a decision. What do I do? Do I follow? Do I imitate? Do I follow Jesus or do I follow myself? and what I am going to do and the hate that is within me. And he says, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be followers of me even as I am also of Christ. It's the same word to mimic, to imitate. Now, if you were here last week, you may say, wait, I heard this word imitation last week, and it was in, in a negative sense. So let's just clear that up real quickly, okay? Yeah, hopefully you understand the difference, right? I'm saying we should imitate Christ. We should imitate those who are following Christ, not have an imitation faith. The two are vastly different. Imitation is 
right? What if for lunch I offered you guys my famous homemade crab cakes? And y'all, you know, we're from Maryland. We know crab. If I said, yeah, that's crab meat, and you bit into it, and you went, oh, that's not crab meat. That's imitation crab meat. You would know it right away, right? Because it's fake. I'm not saying be fake in your faith. I'm saying we need to be imitators, one who follows and one who follows Christ and those who follow Christ. You see, we need imitators, not imitations. We need followers, not fakers. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, to the church at Thessalonica. He calls them brothers over 20 times in this book. And so when he is writing, he is also speaking to you and to I that are believers. And he says, you should be following Christ. You should be following the leaders that are set up above you that are following Christ. Make sure that they are following Christ. But why should you just be following Christ or following people that are imitating Christ just so that you can be a better disciple? Just so that you can feel better about yourself and your own Christian life? That's part of it. But it becomes clear in verse 7. Paul says, so that you became imitators of me, who I'm an imitator of Christ. You became followers of Christ so that you can be an example to all believers. You see, the Thessalonican church were shining examples to others of what disciples look like. Other people saw it. They were an example. The word literally means to be worthy of imitation. And I did a little bit more work on this word. It's tupos in the Greek. This word is the same word that is used when somebody was to write a letter and put the hot wax on it. They took the ring and they made a seal. It's also the same word for minting coins, to put your mark on a coin. This word literally means to leave your mark, to be an example. He's saying to the church at Thessalonica, I'm so proud of you. You have been busy in your faith. You have labored through your love. You have this hope that won't go away, that will never fail. And that is so great because you have imitated us, and you have imitated us so that you can be an example to other people. They were leaving their mark on other people. Do you realize that when you became a believer, when you said yes to Christ, you said yes to following him, to following his leaders, but it didn't end there. You also said yes, that I'm going to be an example to other people. I'm going to be an example to other believers. And so this morning I ask you, What kind of mark are you leaving in your life? What kind of impact are you having in your life? And I will tell you this, whether you think you are or you're not, you're leaving an impact. You're having a mark on the people that are around you. It's whether it's positive or negative. You are going to leave a legacy. See, that's what discipleship is all about. We talk about discipleship programs and churches and how you should be a disciple and you should have, be disciple, making disciples, making disciples. That's what we mean, is following Christ and then showing other people how it's done. Being an example, leaving your mark. See, that's how it happened throughout history. You look at the early church. The early church has left its mark on the universal church who left its mark on the early church look at paul look at the missionary journeys that he took look at the example he was to follow it didn't matter what happened to paul he said i'm going to preach christ i'm going to preach him crucified and risen again who else had their mark on the early church the disciples what did jesus say he said when he left 
go and make disciples. And the disciples, okay, that's what we're going to do. They left their mark. But who left their mark on the disciples? Well, it was Jesus. How did he live his life? He lived his life as an example to others. You've got to understand this. Jesus not only died as a sacrifice, but he lived as an example. Did you get that? He not only died as a sacrifice, but he lived as an example. I wonder, do we act as one that should be mimicked? Do we act as one that people should follow? Would we want somebody following us? Don't we often say, do as I say, not as I do? Oftentimes we say that to our kids, right? Why? Because we're afraid that we're going to mess up, right? I don't know about you, but I have enough going on in my life to worry about. I mess up time and time again. I don't have time to worry about how I'm going to be an example to somebody else. It's hard work. You know, that was my biggest fear about getting married. Heidi will tell you this in, in premarital counseling. I just thought to myself, man, I've got to be a leader of a family and then have kids. Somebody would trust me with another life. Are you kidding me? There should be a, you know, an application process, and I wouldn't have passed. I mean, trust me with somebody else that I can leave my own mark on? That's big. It, asks, it begs you to ask the question, am I living the way I should be living? Am, do I, am I busy in my work? Am I showing love to other people? Do I have that hope that makes a difference? We need that blessed reassurance from time to time, and it comes in verse 9. For they themselves, this is the other churches, the churches in the area, the churches that they have been an example to, they report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son. You see, when Paul started off in verse 3, he was remembering what kind of people this church was. The things that came to mind, bearing in mind is what he says in verse 3. Bearing in mind, this is what I remember. And then he has it confirmed. He has it confirmed by others that are watching that they are indeed doing what they should. And what you see here, and this is amazing. This is awesome. The Word of God is amazing. Verse 3 and verse 9 are connected. You say, okay, how, how does that work? Prove it. Well, it, Paul says that it's been seen that you have turned to God. How do you turn to God? What does it take? It takes faith. They proved that they had their faith because people saw it. They said, not only did you turn to God, but now you are serving the true and the living God. Why would you serve somebody, right? Why would you serve somebody unless you loved them? You prove your love for them. Paul says, no, look, I know it's not easy. Verse 6 says there's tribulations, there's trials. And when you love somebody, you're willing to go through that hard time. You're willing to go through that labor. And so we see the faith, we see the love that's been confirmed, and then it says it's been seen that you wait for his son, that you have that hope, faith, love, and hope. Verse 3 and verse 9 are connected, waiting for his son. Do we wait for Jesus? One commentator puts it this way, in the primitive church, the advent of Christ was not regarded at a distance, but as an event which might occur at any moment. It leads on to an anticipation of the coming glory of Christ. All the early Christians were much occupied with this anticipation, this 
patience, this trust that one day Jesus will return for you and for me. I wonder how much Jesus coming back and returning has an impact on your life. How much of a motivation is it? And I'm not talking about the fear factor motivation. It isn't the, oh, Jesus is going to come back. Oh, is he going to catch me doing what I should be doing? It's not that. It's a motivation of love because we've been told all our lives, right? Those of you who have grown up in a church, you've been told that Christ could come back at any moment, right? Like a thief in the night, in a twinkling of an eye. But do we really believe it? It doesn't make an impact on our life. If we believe something, it makes an impact on our life, right? Jesus said in John 14 to the disciples, I'm going to go to a pre- prepare a place for you, but guess what? I'm coming back. And I don't know if you've been keeping score throughout the Bible, but anytime God or Jesus had said something, it's happened. He comes through on his promise. And then Paul says in verse 10, look, I don't want to leave any doubt as to who I'm talking about. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who came down from heaven, raised from the dead, who rescues us from wrath. Yes, it is that same Jesus that is the reason for the season. It's that same little babe in the straw that came to earth as a man to grow up, to die as a sacrifice. I wonder, does it motivate you? I wonder, does it motivate you to live a life that is busy in your faith, that labors in love, loving other people as you love God for His glory and waiting for Christ's return? That's what discipleship is all about. That's what being a disciple is all about. You may say, you know what? That's a, that's a good example, the church of Thessalonica, but I need to be able to see it. I need to be able to hear it for myself. Well, I've asked a couple of gentlemen James and uh, Brad to come on up and uh, I think this is the the white one I asked them just to share something very brief about their lives and about who has made a a mark on them an impact on them because sometimes it's it's different to just hear about it but then to see it makes a big big difference Brad Thanks, Jim. Um, it's a great message. Um, so Jim asked uh, uh, James and I, actually, as it turns out, I didn't know he'd asked James till this morning. I would already thought about um, a James as I was going to talk. But um, there was a, a man in my life, uh, um, and actually you have a picture of him. Actually, the Internet's an amazing thing this morning. I went out to the old church back in Illinois that I grew up in, and went through their pictures and able to find a picture of, of Gib Woods, who was my youth leader when I was in uh, high school. There's a picture of him at the Christmas banquet that they just held back in uh, Illinois. And um, uh, he was a, a youth pastor in our church uh, back in Illinois, um, and he, he left this mark on me. Um, uh, he, he wasn't a flashy guy at all. He was actually as the town barber, um, uh, so great storyteller. Um, but he was so faithful, and he was so consistent, um, and he loved each of us in that group so much um, that that left a mark for me. And so, um, actually, when I was 15, um, uh, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, pray with uh, uh, Gib uh, to give my life to Christ, um, and it was in our youth room when I was 15 with Gib. And uh, following college, I moved out to Maryland, and um, uh, I got really in, inserted into a church over in Laurel, Maryland, and uh, Faith Baptist Church, and 
and really wanted to be a part of the ministry there. And, and all I knew was that I wanted to have a ministry that um, conveyed you know, the faithfulness of God and that consistency of God, which had meant so much to me. Um, and I wanted to do that to other people. I, you know, I wasn't gifted to be flashy, but I could be faithful and I could be consistent. And so, um, so I got a chance to work uh, in youth ministry there um, and have continued to do so. And again, just trying to sort of um, you know, model those things that Give had modeled to me that he had seen in the Father. And, um, um, and so one of the youth that was a part of that, that group was what we called him then was Jimmy. He's matured to James now, James Schroeder. And uh, James was a, a great young guy. And uh, there are a lot of people that got to pour into James' life. And I, I count myself among one of those that you know, got to have a little part um, in that in our youth group. And um, for me, the, the story was just amazing. So many times you pour into people, and you don't really get to see the, maybe the impacts of that. And it was so exciting to me. I ran across James. We both moved over to the Eastern Shore. And he, he and Laura came into church one Sunday. And... Uh, um, so just sort of to reunite in that and just to see sort of the, the way God has blessed uh, James and Laura and uh, to be an elder that got to sit in the interview of the Schroeder family as they became members of this church was just such a blessing to me. And, uh, again, I just can't say enough about, about James and where God has taken him and, again, just the, uh, the wife and Laura that uh, God has given him and the great kids. And so, again, this mark, the, the give this man on the screen, you know, he put in front of me that um, made such an impact on me. Um, again, I, I hope to pass along to youth here, but also historically sort of youth like, like little Jimmy. So. Jimmy? All right. Thank you. Try to take me seriously for at least for a few minutes, okay? Um, I do have a spare shirt in the back, so. Uh, but anyway, um, I grew up in the church. Um, my dad was pastor of the church at uh, Faith Baptist Church. And um, at an early age in my uh, preteen, early teenage years, my dad, while I was up, he was kind of most, um, had an affair in the church. Divorced. Fam- you know, I, was, I was divorced. Uh, I had a divorced family. My dad left the church. And the first time I looked up to the most was that in my life, you know. Especially being a pastor and a godly man and all that stuff. I love the death. God's love to me, to pour themselves into me, yeah. open, their, open their home to me. <laughs> um, I, I told myself I wouldn't get all emotional, but see my daughter sing this morning, and that just set it off, but just opening their home and pouring themselves into me just, just had a positive impact on my life. I may not have known it at the time, but it did, and it, you know, I can't imagine if I didn't have that in my life how much less 
or know God that I may have. You know, I, I don't know where my story would have gone, but I can't see it going as well. So I just want to thank you. And um, uh, so as, as that happens, you know, um, I can now look back and see the, the seed that was planted in my life and uh, the, the mark that Brad had for showing God's love for me. And now as I look back, I try to, you know, or as I look forward, I try to think to how can I show my mark on other people and especially, you know, I have a heart to do something like Brad did where pour myself out into young people or Awanas or help out the youth where I can. And just, I may not be doing it right. I may not be doing it enough, but I have that desire. And I think it comes from, from uh, people like Brad in my life that during that time. And, um, it, it's, it's weird to, you know, to see the, the story come full circle uh, after that time. It's just, it just really cool now. And we can rejoice and we can praise God. And even to this day, which is kind of even cooler, is that he's still putting his mark on me, I feel. You know, he's led small group. He's continues to open his home and be that just godly example. So, thank you. You wonder about discipleship. How should we live? That's the example. Sometimes it's not enough just to see examples years and years and years ago, but to see it right in front of you to make an impact. You see what it looks like to have your mark made on somebody else. The challenge this morning is for us to be an imitator of Christ, to live a life of faith that is proven by its works and love for others. We know that, again, the love is not always easy. It is seen by self-denying exertions to other people. But here's something you need to know. The people in your life, they're not there by accident. They're there for you to love on. Finally, that hope. That hope is marked by patient endurance. You know that there are going to be hard times. You know that there's going to be hard times. But it's that confidence that will help you through and the strength of him who has conquered death, he will return one day. You know, this is the kind of example that Thessalonian church was. This was the kind of pride that Paul had in this church when he said that you have become an example to other people and you're imitating me. So what, what is the takeaway? What, what is the challenge? What, what am I going to leave here with today? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not going to ask you to get up. I'm not going to ask you to come, come forward. I'm not going to ask you to do anything more than into your heart, into your mind, commit to living a life of faith, a life of love, and a life on hope so that you can make your mark on others' believers that are closely watching you so that one day you can share a story like with Brad and James. You can see the success of discipleship because when you do that, when you live that life, you don't need a discipleship program. You are the discipleship program. Commit this morning to living a life and leaving your mark with faith, with love, and with hope. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your example. We thank you for the people that you place in our lives to be an example to us as they follow you. Lord, we thank you that we have that faith, that love. Lord, we have that hope that 
should impact our lives. That should cause us to want to live differently. Father, we realize that we have the opportunity to make our mark on the people around us, to be an example, a good example, just like this church was in Thessalonica, a good example to others, that we can leave our mark. Lord, I pray that for each person this morning here that has made that commitment. Lord, help them not to walk out of these doors and go, okay, that was, that was okay, but to actually have it make a change in their life. Lord, sometimes it takes us being able to see an example. Lord, I thank you for the example that Brad has been and the example that James has been. And Lord, this is not uh, something about bragging about them. It's bragging about you, that you have shown yourself real to them and given them the opportunity. All they did was say yes and be faithful. Lord, that's what you want from us, is to be faithful in being disciples, making disciples, making disciples. Lord, thank you so much for this body. Lord, thank you so much for this church of, of believers that love you. Lord, help us to make our mark in our community as well as our mark on individuals as we get, uh, get out into our lives. Lord, thank you so much for this. And it's in your name we ask all these things.